I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily. And I'm your other host, Margo. We are very excited today because we are talking about a topic around obsolete things that are no longer a part of our lives, but once upon a time were a big fucking deal. We're talking about the social media sites of our past, be they blogging sites or you know, regular social sites per, that came to us pre-Facebook. We're talking about Friendster, LiveJournal, MySpace, Tumblr, maybe sprinkling some honorable mentions in here. It was a wild era. We didn't know what to do. All of a sudden, we could talk to everybody outside of instant messenger and email, and it was like, what? Okay. Um, I mean, RIP, may they rest. In digital pieces. <laughs> right. I mean, because these sites are all sort of falling apart I mean pretty much I don't think that you can even find a current version of Friendster can mm-hmm. you so not really it is kind of so it exists but it's like a gaming entertainment site now oh oh yeah I worked at one of those so the social media technology that Friendster had was sold over to Facebook a couple of years after they actually tried to buy Facebook interesting in, in Facebook's early incarnation interesting very interesting so in high school and early college, Margot, what social media, blog, what have you, what, what profiles did you have? Okay, so of course I had an instant messenger because instant messenger was live. Of course. It was sort of the uh, digital equivalent of passing notes in class. Yes. Um, but I had to do it at home with the dial-up and my mom would always get really annoyed because I monopolized the phone line constantly. As one did. Uh, and then I, of course, being a gothy, angsty teen, uh, moved over to LiveJournal where I would <laughs> write... Terrible, terrible, terrible poems that all, all, I think almost all of them rhymed and yep. almost all of them were about my shitty ex-boyfriend. And yeah, that was, that's interesting. And then at some point between junior and senior year, a friend of mine convinced me to get a MySpace page. And then MySpace was definitely life until 
I moved to Berkeley and everybody was on Facebook. So I got on Facebook and that's when my MySpace died a very slow death. I have tried to log into my old MySpace several times to try and find oh, you didn't some pictures. It? No. Well, I mean, I'll get into it when yeah. I talk about MySpace, which has, oh my God, I was telling Emily earlier, I, I think initially I took like 10 pages of notes on MySpace and then had to trim that down over several days to five pages. Uh, it was a uh, labor-intensive uh, unraveling to mm. put together. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I tried to log back into my MySpace a couple years ago. And also, again, when I wanted to find those pictures of me with emo hair oh God. <laughs> for our emo yeah, bands episode, yeah. I got that off my um, off my photo bucket, which at one point was owned by MySpace anyway. So right. it's, it's all in there. But I logged into my MySpace, and it was just sort of half there because – Back in 2015, they lost, like, just a shit ton of data. I mean, it makes sense. At that time, like, what are who is going to be disappointed that you lost, other than the occasional nostalgia-seeking so, individual? I mean, me. I'm a little bit disappointed only because <laughs> during that time I was drinking a lot and, you know, doing drugs. And, I didn't like, I counted on MySpace to sort of be, like, my... Your constant? My, at least my timeline to <laughs> recall things. Sometimes I'll, like, be struck with, like, a memory and be like, when was that? I'm like, I have no way of verifying it because whatever SD card these illustrious photo live on is long gone. MySpace oh, is a yeah. shell of itself. It really I mean, is. there are pictures of me and my friend Bree from our 80s clubbing days, which was, like, an 18 and over club in Hollywood that we go to all the time that just played 80s music. But um, <laughs> there were some of those pictures were there, but there were large, just like my own memory, large chunks were missing. <laughs> <laughs> I deleted mine, I think, sophomore Your MySpace? year. Yeah, sophomore year of college or something like that. I did a big overhaul because at the time, yours truly was a quote-unquote go-getter and was trying to get in um, interviews and inter- internships, but I was being told that everybody looked at your social media. Oh. And it was such a... Remember how big of a deal that was, though, in college when you were about to go, like, into the job market? Everyone made this big thing about... But it was actually true. So my friend Marianne, her dad was... He would do, like, background checks yeah. for the government. Yeah. And so he... This was probably, like, two years out of high school. He was doing a background check on someone that we actually went to high school with that was, like, two years older than us. He was, like, this dickhead football player. Anyway, her dad found his Facebook page where he was, like, smoking pot and yep. getting drunk yep. and partying. And he, like, showed it to Mary and she's like, you went to high school with this guy? She's like, oh, yeah, he's kind of a dick. And he's like, well, his Facebook page just cost him a job. So that was actually true. No, I mean, it was. So at the time, I did a big scrub. I was really nervous. So... I deleted my live journal because I had a live journal as well, which I'll get more into personal anecdotes there in a sec. Um, And then I deleted my MySpace and I got rid of later on in college all the quote unquote questionable photos on Facebook. I I mean, I really did a pretty good scrub. Um, Now I'm kind of sad because I feel like I would enjoy seeing this now 10, 15 years later versus... (laughs) Back then when I was freaking out and worried that, like, everything was going to cost me a job. Because, yeah, you're right. They actually, people did look at those things. So, But I think it was early days. I think after that, people stopped kind of really caring did. as much. In fact, it's almost become the opposite where if someone doesn't have a social media presence, you're almost suspicious. Yes, unless That's, you are Joe on the show You, and then it's right. just sort of like a quaint thing because he's hot. Right. No, but generally nowadays, if you don't have any sort of social presence on the internet 
it's almost a red flag for employers because they're thinking either you've done an excellent job <laughs> scrubbing, you know, the internet of everything or I don't know what, but Well, that's exactly why Sean, my husband's only presence on the internet is via LinkedIn. Like he refuses to get into <laughs> anything else, which I truly appreciate because then yeah. I can just like, I can kind of post whatever and I have to worry about him ever seeing it or even caring. <laughs> <laughs> I tell him what's relevant on Twitter, so I take the hit for the both of us. You're the spokesperson. I love it. No, please do not put that on me. <laughs> That's too much pressure and Twitter's too gross. <laughs> I just tell him the highlights. Uh, going through all of these sites has been uh, a real walk down memory lane into the world that we once knew and the world that we never really got to dip our toes into. Well, it's like getting ourselves like personally into the Wayback Machine. Exactly. It really was a personal Wayback Machine. And, and for me, there were a couple where I didn't ever really touch them because I was too young or just never really caught on where I was. Like Friendster, for example, was one of those that I knew about. It became a huge punchline and jokes about like dead social media sites. But ultimately, I never had a Friendster. Did you ever have a Friendster? I never had one. By the time I had heard about it, it was already over. That's exactly it. And whenever I think about Friendster, I think about that 30 Rock joke where Liz Lemon goes about trying to see what her life would be like not working where she does, and she encounters old tech entrepreneurs, and they're like, we hang out with Friendster under the bridge. And that's what I think about whenever anybody brings up Friendster. like, they're just that troll under the bridge. like, we started it all, and then we lost it. I sort of feel like they're, I don't know, like the MC Hammer of apps. It, I mean... They had it all, ways, and then they lost it all. In some ways, they did. I mean, it's, it's weird. So it was a very quick quick timeline and I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of deep dive into it as, as quickly as possible. It was started in March 2002 by a guy named Jonathan Abrams who to this day is still a tech entrepreneur, serves on the board of many tech nonprofits, including Girls Who Code, but he started this site in 2002. The site's core belief was around six degrees of separation in that everyone had six or less degrees separating one another. In fact, Friendster had a feature where you could see how you were connected to someone. For example, I would go on Jane Doe's profile. Wow, maybe don't use that one. <laughs> I would go on John Smith's profile and see that I am Still not much better, but we're, we'll roll with this one. <laughs> so we got to keep going here. Was friends with Margot, who's friends with Sean. Hey, don't put that on me. I don't know a John Smith. <laughs> who's friends with John. So I could see these connections. And that, that was kind of the first ever conceptualizing of, of an idea of being able to see... Mutual friends. Mutual friends, second degree connections, third degree connections, something that's really commonplace in almost any social media site nowadays. This was done to encourage people to chat online, strike up friendships, and maybe even find a love connection. So, and meet IRL for a day because you can totally trust your friends, 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 friend. Wasn't that how Bumble works or Hinge or one of those ones? So, Hinge does. A couple of sites work that way, but it's always, it's one degree. So it's like a mutual friend. It's not going to be like three friends down the line. Okay. But it is interesting to think that Friendster essentially pioneered this idea, this concept for almost every social media site, dating site, what have you, to help you better find interesting things for yourself or interesting people using the idea of, well, you're friends with this one person, so you might as well be friends with this other person. At its peak in 2003, Google wanted to acquire Friendster for $30 million. And keep in mind, this money sounds pretty small, but this is like post-dot-com boom. The bubble had burst, and so people were a lot more conservative with their acquisitions. And you just didn't have, I think, the level of 
speculation in terms of companies value that you have nowadays I feel like if Friendster had come out now in the in the last decade it probably would have gotten like a 300 million dollar evaluation or something for for at the time what what it was seen as in terms of a pioneering effort hmm. Friendster said no and in Google in its retaliation they uh, they launched this site called Orcut which I guess is the predecessor to Google Plus um, Which, again, <laughs> didn't work either. <laughs> I agree. I went to the graveyard recently, I think in like the last two years. That was a failed early attempt for them at a social network in January 2004. And then one of Friendster's investors, Mark Pincus, who would later go on to found Zynga, launched a competitor in 2003 called Tribe.net. So there were a lot of copycats to Friendster around that time that never quite from a name standpoint became as famous as Friendster did. Friendster was a predecessor to and would eventually serve as an inspiration for MySpace. If you look at the UIs or the user interfaces of both these sites, they look Ooh, using industry terminology. God, you're not. I just <laughs> outed myself as a tech employee. <laughs> you look at these two sites, the screen grabs, and they look very similar. Um, MySpace took what worked for Friendster and, and made it work better. It would be MySpace that would start to be responsible for Friendster's decline, but it was ultimately, it was Facebook that helped steal the site's fate. When its reliable servers and cleaner user experience ended up being something that people preferred over Friendster, which for most of its incarnation was actually dealing with site issues all the time. It was very difficult to log in, very difficult to use. And so people started gravitating towards other sites like MySpace. And once Facebook really became a huge thing, that's when it really took over. So Abrams, the founder of Friendster, hadn't been too concerned with the Friendster competition in the past. But we saw what Facebook was doing, especially with its exclusivity component. So keep in mind, if you remember, Facebook only allowed people at certain colleges in its first conception. So it was, I believe, Harvard. Um, Brown, maybe Yale, and then Stanford, and then slowly but surely kept adding more and more colleges to the roster, and eventually became a strictly college thing for a bit. And so he saw the potential there, um, but that, at the time they'd only launched in a few schools. He decided to start or try launching an initiative on the Friendster side called the Friendster College Initiative, where they would have tried to launch Friendster on 20 different college campuses because they had the infrastructure to do that, which from a scalability standpoint, Facebook didn't quite have yet because they were still very, very new. While Friendster had set up the right blueprint and skeleton for social media, the servers the company was using were slow, resulting in a really laggy user experience. MySpace and later Facebook had set themselves up using better servers, and as a result, people started flocking to their sites and abandoned Friendster. Abrams claims that the company offered to buy Facebook in 2004, but in the interview I read, he didn't disclose the amount, but it was clear that Zuckerberg wasn't interested with whatever they were giving or looking to give. Facebook bought out Friendster's social networking patents in 2010 because of the popularity in other regions of the world. So when Friendster basically died in 2006 in the United States, like had basically no presence left, mm -hmm. it actually was super popular in Southeast <clears throat> Asia until the site redesigned in 2009. Like Interesting. They, they had like 10 million users on, in Southeast Asia uh, up until 2009. I read this really interesting article that was published. That actually makes a ton of sense because... A lot of Marianne's relatives that live in the Philippines all loved Friendster for the longest time. Yeah. And those were the only people I knew who had 
current Friendster accounts. That's something I found interesting with some of these social media sites, and we'll talk about it in Live Journal later. Something really fascinating is that while these sites we make jokes about them in the United States about when they you know became less and less popular. Ultimately, they found second lives elsewhere and continue to be super popular um, in certain markets. So the Asian market really adopted Friendster and like other things like QR codes are very popular in Asia, for example, whereas in the US, you know, maybe at a conference or two you use them, but it's not as big of a thing. Even like other things like Tower Records, like which, you know, is out of completely out of business and defunct in the United States. But in Japan has stores uh, all over the country. Hmm. Yeah. Just very interesting how that all goes down. In this really interesting article I read on Wired, there was this kind of digital anthropology group working to research Friendster's demise and kind of document it as the first example of a social media site that really went under and how it all happened. So that from like a, a study, they can kind of determine what are the factors that determine a social networking site is going to go under and become obsolete. And it was because they still had, in 2009, there were still millions of users on the platform, but because people had abandoned it shortly after creating a profile, they had few or no connections. So the point of Friendster is that you already, you set up your connections and then you make more connections happen as a result. If you have zero to no, or little to no connections, obviously then the point of the site is diminishing. Yeah, it's diminishing. So over time they noticed that it was obviously the outsiders the people on the fringe weren't doing much with it and then over time it slowly gradually made its way to the core users who found more use out of facebook myspace what have you while i was never on friendster looking back at these screenshots i mean it looks myspace looks so much like it i'm surprised there wasn't a lawsuit i mean maybe there was and i didn't catch that in my research but the you the the interfaces between the two look very similar I don't really have much else on Friendster. Like I said, I don't really have any personal anecdotes, but do you have any other interesting stories around Friendster? Uh, beyond the two that I shared within this, no. <laughs> I Like I said, I found out about Friendster about the time that it was already over because I was on MySpace.com. Yeah. And I don't think you missed any lawsuits because even on my end, there is no, like, MySpace was sued by Friendster. For, there, was, there was none of that. None of that came up out of all of the research that I did, which was quite a bit. So being friends with some white guy waving in front of a dry erase board named Tom, having a top eight of friends, and embedding music into your MySpace page is now mostly a punchline to a joke. But from 2005 to 2008, MySpace was the largest social networking site in the world, surpassing Google and unique visitors per day. That's insane. Yeah. Like when you think about it in terms of today, to know that there was a site out there that had more visitors than Google. For, and for a sustained amount of time. Right, right, right. And globally, not just in the U.S. Yeah. MySpace's true start in 2003 is more clinical and exacting, but the idea for MySpace came to future co-founder Krista Wolf, where most evil in L.A. starts, USC. <laughs> in the 90s, during his last year as an MBA student, DeWolf took a class called The Impact of Tech on Media and Entertainment. It was taught by Paul Biracolt, who was the head of digital media at William Morris Agency. Around this time, internet giants Yahoo and Netscape, which <laughs> we'll talk about something that never Woo! gets used. I, I, I mean, they tried to bring back Internet Explorer, which I think is sort it's of okay. Edge now. Oh, really? That yeah. was called IE. No, it's Edge. Oh, that's dumb. <laughs> That's so dumb. This is just called every wrong decision. Okay. 
Anyway, so Yahoo and Netscape had just gone public, like, to stock. Like we mentioned in the Y2K episode, using an internet search engine at this time was more or less experimental instead of, like, a habit or a consistent source of information like it is now. For DeWolf's final project, he created the Sightgeist, which had some elements of what would become MySpace. It was City Search meets Instant Messenger meets Match.com, combining community features into one mega site. So fast forward to August of 2003, DeWolf and future MySpace president slash everybody's first MySpace friend, Tom Anderson, Tom. work at eUniverse, an internet marketing company. So they wanted to capitalize on Friendster's potential and rise in popularity, so they decided to launch their own version. Within 10 days, the first version of MySpace was ready for launch because they were able to leverage the infrastructure of eUniverse's finance, human resources, technical expertise, bandwidth, and server capacity for the site, which ended up being huge. The first MySpace users were eUniverse employees. The company held contests to see who could sign up the most users. E-Universe also used its 20 million users and email subscribers to move MySpace to the head of the pack of social networking websites. A key architect in, in all of this was the tech expert Tone Win, who helped stabilize the, My, the MySpace platform to take on this many users so quickly and all at once. That's, I mean, essentially that's why I, MySpace beat Friendster, is because of that. Mm-hmm. The MySpace.com domain was originally owned by YourZ.com. Until 2002, it was meant for use for online data storage and sharing, but sort of like a box site. Mm. But by late 2003, they had transitioned it from a file storage service to a social networking site. DeWolf had initially suggested that they charge a fee for basic MySpace services, but Brad Greenspan, who was another eUniverse employee who helped launch MySpace, nixed the idea because he believed that keeping MySpace free was necessary to making it a successful community, which is what they were trying to pitch it as first, as a community. Which I think is something that now Facebook leverages quite Very a bit, well especially right now. If you think about, yep, their ad campaign that's happening now about groups, and it's quite frankly the only reason that I still have a Facebook page at all. I use it for groups and Messenger, and then for recommendations when I travel. That's really it. Yeah. Um, in a 2012 interview with Forbes, DeWolf called the MySpace community, quote, a place for creative expression, so the creative community picked up picked up on it first. It was interesting to watch the virality grow. It went from LA to New York and then for some reason to Hawaii. I'm not exactly sure why, but 70% of Hawaii was on MySpace early on. Wow. I know. <laughs> but I think that sort of speaks to the community aspect of it, yeah. of feeling connected and they're sort of like, I mean, they're out there and they're sort of like limited. Yeah. So it kind of connects them to a more, what's happening in the real world. Well, right. not real world, but what's happening on the mainland. Yeah. He also credits MySpace's rise with the timing coinciding with reality television. If everybody wants to be famous, they could be on MySpace. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, first of all, it launched people like Tila Tequila, but it, in turn, it also allowed you, if you were a celebrity at the a reality show celebrity, that was the place where you could have your online profile and have an online personality and everything. I remember trying to add all the Laguna Beach. <laughs> Um, actors on oh, MySpace. Oh, right, because you yeah. could be friends with their profiles, exactly. much like the way that you can like a page or whatever on right, Facebook right, right. and be connected that way. But more so than celebrity, music became a huge part of their success story. MySpace is credited with launching the careers of Sean Kingston, yeah. Lily Allen, and Arctic Monkeys. In 2004, R.E.M., the band, partnered with MySpace to preview their latest album, Around the Sun, on the site exclusively for two weeks, sparking a really long-lasting trend that we see now. MySpace started mixing music with business, 
So in a way, a user could go and visit Hillary Duff's profile and listen to his three-song preview that was also sponsored by Sparkle's Secret Deodorant because the page was skinned with that. Right. That was the interesting thing with MySpace. It's just the level of customization you could get to. Right. So right before MySpace was bought, they had seriously considered buying Facebook. But Mark Zuckerberg has always been a little prick. Just watch social network sheeple. (laughs) And he came in with a fucking insane number, especially for 2005 Facebook. He wanted $75 million. So DeWolf and Anderson understandably rejected the deal. MySpace was sold to Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation in 2005 for $580 million. Good for them. Being beat out by Viacom. Within a year, MySpace had tripled in value from its purchase price. News corporations saw the purchase as a way to capitalize on internet advertising and drive traffic to other News Corp properties, which is very succession of them. (laughs) Shortly after MySpace sold to News Corporation, they launched their own record label, MySpace Records, to discover unknown talent on MySpace music. Gotta get that Murdoch money, baby! I feel like this is, like, the first thing that, like, white people do is, like, open their own fucking record label. Of course. (laughs) I don't know why. Artists could upload their songs, EPs, full-length albums to MySpace. Again, like I said, Lily Allen, Owl City, Hollywood Undead, Arctic Monkeys, Copeland Paramore, Katy Perry, The Cab, Tyga, Secondhand Serenade, and Drop Dead Gorgeous all gained fame and recognition through MySpace. Over 8 million artists have been discovered on MySpace. In late 2007, the site launched MySpace Transmission, which was a series of live in-studio recording by well-known artists. And as of 2014... Over 53 million songs have been uploaded to MySpace by 14.2 million artists, which I think is insane. Yeah. I forget, and I think we also dismiss oftentimes what a big driver MySpace music was for such a long, concentrated period of time. I mean, I emo think would even, not have had its day if not for right, MySpace. Right, like, <laughs> cute without the E <laughs> yep. and uh, Drop Dead are definitely two um, emo bands. But yep. even beyond that, this is like pre- You'd have to get your stuff, like, on an, iP- on an iPod if you wanted to listen to things. But if you just want to listen to music on your computer, it was, like, before you could even have... You had to either have, like, your iTunes library or... or a legally was... downloaded library. From LimeWire yeah. or Napster. Yeah. Or you could go on MySpace Music and listen to, like, a streaming album. That's true. But it was... It predates, clearly, like, Pandora or even a Spotify. Yep. And so we get into the best of times and the worst of times. And it all turns very quickly from their peak, which would arguably be 2005, into its decline. Less than a year into their new relationship, Fox announced plans to launch a UK version of MySpace in a bid to tap into the UK music scene, which is how we get Arctic Monkeys, which they did. And then they went on to release a version in China and a bunch of other countries following the success of the UK and China. That same year, in 2006, Rupert Murdoch announced that he thinks that MySpace could be worth as much as $6 billion if they can reach 200 million user profiles by mid-2007. The 100 millionth account was created on August 9th, 2006 in the Netherlands. Also happening in 2006, which you could file under the worst of times, a teen girl commits suicide after her friend's mom cyberbullies her by catfishing her via MySpace. And Connecticut Attorney General... Richard Blumenthal, launched an investigation into child pornography on MySpace. He's now the senator, by the way, or one of the senators of Connecticut. Huh. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Senator Blumenthal. That's our D.C. corner chiming in. (laughs) The resulting media frenzy and MySpace's inability to build an effective spam filter gave the site a reputation as a, quote, vortex of perversion. 
Sensing the beginning of the end, alternatives to MySpace like Twitter formed and began targeting MySpace users, while Facebook rolled out communication tools, which were seen as safe in comparison to MySpace. A Microsoft researcher compares the shift of white middle-class kids from the quote-unquote seedy-seeming MySpace to the quote-unquote supposedly safer Facebook as, in essence, gentrification. <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> the perception of MySpace will drive out advertisers as well. And if you remember, MySpace had very public problems with phishing, malware, and spam, just to name a few, and they were never able to get those fully under control. But the final fatal blow was that MySpace users, who were teenagers when they joined, grew up and went to college and trickled over to Facebook where all their college-age friends were. But we're not there yet. In 2007, MySpace was still hanging in there, and even into 2008 was considered a leading social media networking site. It consistently beat out Facebook in traffic, so there was no real threat there. As a matter of fact, Facebook did little to diminish MySpace's popularity at first. At its peak, when News Corp was attempting to merge it with Yahoo in 2007, MySpace was valued at $12 billion. <laughs> it's just like, this is like fake money. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. You know what, though? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Because, like, we're talking about this, and it's like, we work like Theranos, like all these companies that had similar valuations at one point or another. And we believed very deeply that these companies would be worth this much. And then six months later... <laughs> Something happens. The bottom like, drops exactly, out. Exactly. Exactly. But in spring of 2008, it all changed. Facebook finally passed MySpace in user and search rankings. Since this point on, MySpace has been hemorrhaging membership. I don't know why I'm laughing. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just like I'm trying to deliver Bleeding like users. Just to, trying to deliver some like Dateline severity, and it's not working. There are several explanations for the site's decline. Some blame the design of the site itself. Because they were stuck in what was called a portal model instead of creating more of like a dynamic way to, I don't know, create a page. I don't know much about what the fuck I'm just saying, but <laughs> that's not clear enough. But it w- people had blamed like the portal model and they hadn't been able to innovate past that. Some others blame the failure to innovate past entertainment and music. A former MySpace executive suggests that the $900 million three-year advance deal with Google was a handicap in the long run. The deal required MySpace to place even more ads on a heavily advertised site, which made it slower and more difficult to use and less flexible. MySpace could not experiment with its own site without forfeiting revenue. Facebook could focus on creating a platform that allowed outside developers to build new applications for it, but MySpace was hampered by the fact that they built everything in-house. That was just sort of like the model that they were never able to shed once they had outgrown eUniverse. Yeah. So we come to the end. Even though MySpace generated $800 million in revenue during the 2008 fiscal year, they still fell short of the $1 billion mark in total revenue, which, wow, what fucking expectations. (laughs) That resulted into Wolf and Anderson gradually losing their status within Murdoch's inner circle, and this is when the executive shuffle starts. DeWolf's mentor, Pete Chernin, the president and COO of News Corp, departed in June of 2009. Former AOL executive Jonathan Miller joined News Corp in charge of the digital media business and was in the job for three weeks when he cleaned house on the MySpace executive team. MySpace president Tom Anderson, our beloved Tom, stepped down. Krista Wolf was replaced as MySpace CEO by former Facebook COO Owen Van Natta. And in, t- and in typical startup fashion, pre-firing, they had all started opening pricey offices around the world and had even bought a building in Venice they never fucking moved into. Following the executive layoffs, the more real layoffs 
37.5% of its workforce, including 30% of its U.S. employees, were laid off, reducing employees from 1,600 to 1,000. In 2009, MySpace implemented... In 2009, MySpace implemented site redesigns and attempted to redefine itself as a social media entertainment site, more of a focus on music and movies and celebrities and television instead of social networking. They developed a link-up with Facebook that would allow musicians and bands to manage their Facebook profiles through MySpace, but it didn't work. In January 2011, MySpace laid off 500 employees, or almost 50% of its workforce. In March of 2011, market research released a Comscore, which suggested that MySpace had lost 10 million users between January and February of 2011. They found out that they had bled a bunch of fucking users, and they had fallen from 95 million to 63 million unique users during the previous 12 months. MySpace's sharpest decline was in February of 2011, as you just heard, where traffic fell from 44% from the year earlier. Around this time, News Corp officially put the site up for sale. It was estimated to be worth between 50 and 200 million, which, like, what a fucking decline. <laughs> the deadline for bids was May 31st, 2011, which passed without any takers, even anywhere near the $100 million mark. Its continuing decline scared off any potential interest. That summer, Specific Media Group and Justin Timberlake jointly purchased the company for $35 million. In February of 2016, it was announced that MySpace and its parent company had been purchased by Time Inc. Time Inc. was in turn purchased by the Meredith Corporation on January 31st, 2018. And in March of 2019, it was revealed that MySpace had lost all of their user content from 2015 and earlier in a botched server migration with no backup. I have it bolded and underlined because I could not believe it. Over 50 million songs and 12 years worth of content were permanently lost. In April 2019, the Internet Archive managed to recover 490,000 MP3s or 1.3 terabytes uh, by unknown means <laughs> between the years of 2008 and 2010. The songs were uploaded and are collectively known as the MySpace Dragon Horde if you're ever looking for tunes around <laughs> from around that time. That's amazing. Even though MySpace ended with a whimper of a sale within a sale, it is considered to be one of the key drivers of Web 2.0 in the mid-2000s. It is recognized as a pioneer of social media that had a deliberate focus on entertainment and was much loved by celebrities. It also created a game platform that aided the launch of Zanga. We would not have Farmville without, My without MySpace. In 2015, MySpace still had 50.6 million unique monthly visitors and had a pool of over 1 billion active and inactive registered users. As of January 2018, MySpace ranked 4,153 by total of web traffic, with a total of, well, roughly 1,600 coming from the United States. I just want to run through some of the features that it had and, like, some two quick scandals before I conclude our time here with MySpace. Because MySpace actually had quite a few features. They kind of, like, they did the thing of all tech startups, which is, like, just added too much too quickly, wasn't yeah. ready for it, made some bad deals, bled some money, was a little too excited by having Murdoch dollars, that kind of stuff. In 2005, MySpace users had the ability to embed YouTube videos on their MySpace profiles until MySpace realized they could actually make some money off of creating their own player. So they briefly banned YouTube videos, but after users protested, they walked the rule back. In August 2006... MySpace began offering classified ads. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Which grew by 33% by 2007, which I can't think of anything sketchier than MySpace classified ads. <laughs> sketchier than Craigslist. Wow. In May 2007, MySpace partnered with National Geographic, The New York Times, and Reuters to provide professional videography reportage content. In June 2007, MySpace launched MySpace TV. August 2007, MySpace partnered with The Onion to provide audio, video, and print content. October 2007, MySpace launched its first original web series called Roommates, which, quote, intended to give its users a television-like experience with the interactive benefits of the internet, which is essentially Twitter, <laughs> which is live watching on Twitter. February 2008, fucking the cursed website TMZ launched a web channel on MySpace TV, so thanks a lot for that. In April 2008, MySpace signed a deal with Byron Allen's Entertainment Studios. The deal brought entertainment studio programming with syndicated shows like Comics Unleashed with Byron Allen, Entertainment with Byron Allen, Beautiful Homes and Great Estates, and Designers and Fashion Runways, which I don't know any of that fucking... I have no idea what any of these shows are. I don't know who Byron Allen is. I don't either. Two quick scandals that were very MySpace-centric. The first... And I didn't write down years for either of these, so just assume it's somewhere between 2005 and 2008. A 16-year-old named Catherine Lester makes international headlines when she secretly leaves her Michigan home to fly to the Middle East to be with Abdullah Jinzawi, her Palestinian boyfriend whom she met on MySpace. U.S. authorities stopped her in Jordan and sent her back to the U.S. The other was the well-known Elliot Spencer, Elliot Spencer, <laughs> Elliot Spitzer mistress, Ashley Dupree, who had her MySpace page used against her publicly as the scandal unfolded. And that is MySpace. That is the legacy that we are left for MySpace. You had so much more content than I did. I am exhausted. When I tell you that this was, I mean, trimming it down to five pages, I was sweating, okay? <laughs> I gotta say, with MySpace, though, way to go. Like, everyone makes Tom out to be a joke. Like, oh, you know, you don't want to end up like Tom. But honestly... Tom is rich, Tom and is him rich. and his wife are traveling the world. So beautiful who's laughing photography. now? You follow him on, on Instagram. He has beautiful photography. And guess what? He doesn't have to testify to anyone about shit because he didn't go out and sell data to Cambridge Analytica. I mean, honestly, I think they all got out at the right time. Chris DeWolf went on to co-found what's now called Jam City, which makes app-based games. Yeah. And so he's a CEO of that company and probably rich as well. I'm sure they walked away with some money. You know, you don't get laid off as an executive without pocketing some, some sort coin. Some package. Yes, yeah. when you pass go, you collect $200 million or yep. something. Yep. So I'm, I think they got out at the right time, and I wonder what they think about Facebook and if they would have predicted this. When they met Mark Zuckerberg in late 2004, early 2005, and offered him or offered to buy out Facebook, and he countered with 75 million. That seems to be the common thread here, though, is like Friendster offered, and then MySpace offered, and he said no to both of them. And in these interviews, 
They've made it out to seem like, you know. Well, Facebook said no to him. They just thought it was too much money. But he obviously gave them a price that they didn't want to pay. I just wonder in sort of like a parallel universe if MySpace or Friendster just said fuck it and bought it out. Like what what would we be dealing with? What would we be dealing with right now? No, I know. It's it's an interesting. Is Hillary Clinton president in this time frame? Probably. But emo makes a much longer dent in our pop culture. You think? Maybe. I would think. I don't, I don't know. know. I say it all kind of explodes in the same way, and MySpace or and Facebook goes down with MySpace. That's true. I guess they would go on. They would go down together at the same time. The other site that I covered for today's episode is LiveJournal, which had a huge impact on me in high school. I had a LiveJournal. Margot had a LiveJournal. Oh yeah. Go more on that later. But first, a little bit about the history. LiveJournal was started in 1999 by Brad Fitzpatrick, who at the time was a college student at the University of Washington. He'd been kicked off AOL for messing up with their servers too much and wanted to create a space where he could keep his high school friends up to date on what was going on in his life. So he started this platform. And it was really kind of thought of as short, sporadic updates like going to get pizza, feeling happy. So you remember in oh, live, I see. yeah, I remember in live journal you had the yes. ability to pick an emotion, yes. the song you were listening yes. to, and a little profile icon. Well, you could also sometimes if you picked your emotion, it had like a little cat or yeah, like exactly. a face. Yeah, exactly. You could have an emoji of setting or an emoji family of your choice. They could be cats, they could be smiley faces, whatever you wanted. I think there were like rockets and stuff. I forget, so but yeah. He, he really started as this just being kind of an update thing, but he wanted it to kind of be a free base thing that people could use. So he started spreading it to his friends and giving them the code to, to do oh, it. Oh, like a GitHub thing? Right. So they started, you know, uploading the code themselves and started creating their own accounts. And then within his own dorm at the University of Washington, he got people onto LiveJournal. And what was interesting is it went from that quick status update idea to a more long-form blog site. Because at the time, blogs were not much of a thing. Like, um, I believe WordPress started around 2003, 2004, and then also Blogspace and all the other ones kind of started either around the same time or a little bit later, but LiveJournal was really one of the first to capitalize on it all. What differentiated LiveJournal from other blogging platforms at the time was that it was pretty basic and open, so it allowed you to heavily customize it. Like, I don't know about you, but for me, the first time I ever learned how to do something in HTML was on LiveJournal. Like, just a strike through on a word or, like, changing the color and bolding. But those little things were the first time I ever, or even you know, changing like how to do HTML, even changing sort of like the format of it within the post, like yeah, making exactly. it centered, making it centered, or adding a uh, adding a line of calling code. out a quote. Oh yeah, or adding a line of code that has a picture, so you have like right. a border around your picture. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. And copying and pasting an entire like HTML code so you could get the image on your profile because they yes. had that ability. Oh my God, so so, so many. many Buffy exactly. profile pictures. Exactly. In fact, one of the articles that I read about uh, it was a retrospective on Live Journal talked about it being the Linux of blogging which is true wow yeah i mean it was very open source at the time and you really didn't have to pay um to get a lot out of it as long as you were willing to do the work to learn you know how to format it how to be able to get stuff but i felt like it was easy to figure to find the codes that you needed for whatever you wanted to do and it was pretty easy to find at its peak live journal had 2.5 million users and this is around like 2004 2005 
And it was around that time that LiveJournal was acquired by Six Apart, a company that had started Movable Type, another blogging platform. And reading some of the articles uh, with the former employees that were interviewed, they were really hoping that um, Six Apart was gonna come in and bring the strategic direction that the site needed. Because at the time, it really was just Brad Fitzpatrick and a few of his friends. And they didn't have the servers, they didn't have the means and the money, and so they were you know, trying to make it happen, but they weren't getting the level of uh, visibility that they wanted. And they were hoping this acquisition meant that they could go from there and, and do something with the site and just kind of bring it to a, a bigger space. And then two years later, <laughs> Six Apart would sell the company to SUP Media, a Russian media company. And so now LiveJournal is actually a Russian site and I will go into <laughs> the history of how it became a Russian site. So the site began being known among Russian citizens beginning in 2001 when Roman Leboff, the site's first Russian language blogger, created an account. He linked his live journal in a forum, and eventually live journal became a thing amongst Russian journalists, political activists, and academics. Kind of the way we used to see Twitter. So if you're thinking I like, see. yeah, in the early 2000s, uh, 2010s, when a lot of countries were shutting down websites to publicize, you know, what was happening, if there were revolutions or revolt, it was Twitter you would go to where you would see, you know, in Tunisia or Egypt or something like that, people were t able to tweet what was happening in these protests. And the same thing goes for, for Russia. Obviously, with like Putin's government, you were shutting down things. Everything is kind of Kremlin-controlled. You can uh, have access to data whenever you want. But LiveJournal servers were in California and Mountain View, and so all these Russian citizens were able to blog on LiveJournal and talk about what was really happening without suffering the repercussions. And so it eventually becomes super popular because of this reason. And the company will, after they are acquired by this Russian company, they begin relocating some of their offices to Russia in 2009. And by 2016, they had relocated their servers to the country. The following year, in 2017, they changed their terms and conditions to comply with Russian law. So over the years, some prime ministers, political pundits, and journalists have had live journals. So it's become quite famous, and they've even done kind of co-sponsorships with Russian media companies and the government. But on the flip side, because they now are abiding by Russia's terms and conditions and their servers are operating out of Russia, there have been people who have uh, suffered repercussions for blogging on LiveJournal against the government. There were various journalists and um, pro famous protesters and activists who were on LiveJournal, you know, really pro talking about what was happening. And then they would get arrested by the government for speaking against the government. So it's kind of insane that this place that we used to go to as teenagers is now a Russian-controlled website. That is a plot twist I did not see coming. Yes, I know. I was very surprised. Well, especially since, oh, no, they d Well, that would actually explain quite a bit about, oh, no, they didn't. So I'm going to get into that. Oh, but, great. Yeah, so it's it's interesting that the site has changed a lot since this all went down at, oh, no, they didn't. So one interesting American holdout on LiveJournal is, oh, no, they didn't, which is the most famous LiveJournal account that still exists. It has over 100,000 members, which is pretty insane because it was started in 2004 by three teenagers named Aaron Lang, Bree Daff Draffrin, and Brenicia Rubin. And I'm sorry if I butchered those names. ONTD was the first community to break the news of Jamie Lynn Spears' pregnancy, which I had forgotten about. Um, yep, and, and then it was all the other major media outlets that would break it. Um, it was also the first to report that Kirk Acevedo had announced uh, that he had been fired from the Fox drama Fringe. 
And then around the John and Kate Gosselin infidelity rumors, they were posting photos of John out on the town uh, when he was out partying. Um, and it showed him posing with two young women at a local bar. And then it was after that that Who Gossip wants to magazine. pose with that guy? Ugh, gross. And then, like, he had just gotten earrings. Like, it was just oh, a mess. No. Well, he's, you like, know, a DJ a, now. I know. It's, it's a hot mess. But he DJs at, like, a Chili's on Valentine's Day. You know, it's, like, the stuff... I mean, they say comedy, you don't have to look far. No, <laughs> indeed. So Live Journal, ultimately, apart from Oh No, They Didn't, is really a very kind of Russian site. There really aren't, I can't think of any other live journal accounts these days that are English. I know. I, yeah. I, I, like I told you, I didn't even delete my live journal page. I just assume that it deleted itself at some point in time, just kind of combusted. But I, especially now that I know that they're in Russia, I, I feel like they had to have wiped a bunch of stuff. Oh, for sure. There are no live journal sites. I, I don't know anybody who else, I don't know anybody else who is on it, no. so there's no real reason for me to really follow it in general, other than, oh, no, they didn't, which I can just log on and just read it, and, and that's I, fine. I don't even need, you don't even need to log on to, oh, no, they didn't. No, I just mean, when I say log on, I mean type it oh, in my web it. browser. Right, right, right. Not, I don't need to log in, but, I mean, there are some ads on it, and there were a couple of times when, like, the site was down for undisclosed reasons. And it's because of that. Russia, I yeah. assume. So now that makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, and it's calmed down quite a bit. Like, I feel like people still flock to Oh No, They Didn't, surprisingly. Like, it's a great, still a good site to get. Because it's, I mean, I think because it is user-submitted, but it's the people that write for it are very funny, and they break news in an interesting way. Yeah. And I just feel like it's also, because this isn't like a Jezebel, this isn't like a content mill, they don't really have any sort of vested interest. They're no, just telling you because they're just they, telling you because they fat figured this. It out. feels like the it. Who Weekly Facebook group, to it be does. honest. It really does. In a lot of ways, because these people are so funny, they're so smart. This isn't their job, but they're just so excited about pop culture. So it feels more like people who like pop culture sharing things together. And I don't know what I would like do a user without sourced gossip blog. Yes, the UGC gossip blog. Yeah, but a lot of the gossip is always very good. Um, very no. rarely do I ever walk away feeling like I felt, I don't know, no, like manipulated by anybody. But it's never, it's very rarely actually false. Like, it's well done. It's yes. blind items. Like, well. I mean, it's vetted. It's vetted. Honey. And it's, well, and, and so where you would get gossip in Star Magazine or, like, In Touch or whatever, that is completely false. I mean, they also post those covers, though, just sort of, like, as an LOL. Yeah. But, yeah. Ultimately, though, I, I'm really amazed at what people over ONTD do on a regular basis. Some people have been reading the Times their whole life, the New York Times their whole life, or Los Angeles Times, or an SF Weekly. I have been reading, oh no, they didn't pretty much 15 years at this point. Yeah, I Since 2005. I would say the same, a lot less than I used to, but I, I definitely flock there for, for good gossip. I read it at least once a day. That's amazing. I love Oh No, They, oh, no, they Didn't. It's also one of the few other places, but now that I am a patron to 90 Day Bay, I have another 90 Day Fiance outlet, <laughs> but it's the only other place that I can get like a funny recap about 90 Day Fiance. Because they don't do it on Vulture anymore. Because I think Zui is too busy writing for um, that Showtime show. They are average. They average about 100 posts a day, too, which is good. I mean, there's just always good There's new always content. content to read. So I'm going to go into my personal anecdotes 
about LiveJournal. Oh, Lord. Yours truly was a prolific user on LiveJournal in high school. I used to get super angsty on my now-deleted Thank God Journal. My account was called Yellow Gummy Bear, same as my AAM <laughs> screen name. It's blonde hair. It's dumb. I know. Mm. In this live journal, I lamented being considered a goody two-shoes and wanting to shed my good girl image. Folks, my entries were real deep. I actually remembered my profile headline the other day. You remember when you had a big profile headline? Vaguely. So there was I think like mine a- was always a different song lyric. Right. So mine was too. I remembered one of them the other day at the hair salon because they played Garbage is Only Happy When It Rains. Oh, of course. And I had made my headline at one point. Wait for it. Drum roll, please. Pour your misery down on me. I mean, like every good suburban angsty white girl, you had that lyric as your headline. I also used a Cure lyric at one point. Of course. But it was from Friday in Love, so I was a little bit of a poser. I remember in addition to writing entries with titles, you could pick a mood for what you were feeling uh-huh. and then use those different emoji yep. families. So you'd have a cat emoji family or an alien or a smiley face. Oh, right. The alien. Yes. <laughs> you could also note what you were listening to at the time of course. Uh, while writing the entry. Again, the poser of me would write that I was listening to one song to seem cool. But sometimes I was actually listening to another, but I was too embarrassed to share. So it's show tunes? Probably. No, well, maybe show tunes. It could have. It was probably honestly some like terrible, like Britney. It was. It was was Celine again. No, it was actually probably Britney Spears, and I was just embarrassed because all my friends were big into emo and like goth rock and whatnot, who were at least on Live Journal. I would say like five out of ten of my Live Journal posts had Taking Back Sunday playing. Of course they did. The other thing was that ability to have icons and banner images if you had the HTML code. So I had some really cool images at the time. You could switch up your profile icon and store up to six or seven at a time, if I recall correctly. At one point, I had, of course, the musicals. Wicked-themed icon, a parent trap icon. I had an Audrey Hepburn one. I'm pretty sure I had one for Coldplay at one point. Like, (gasps) yeah, I know. In addition to getting moody on LiveJournal... There were communities you could join. So some were open to anyone. You could just join if you had a shared interest or you're from a certain area, whatever. Others were private, and the moderators would ask you to submit an application and get a majority approval of members in the comments. I applied for one of these communities and Uh-oh. got in. Oh, good. I joined an elite live journal community by the name of Gators Green. It was a community for true preppy people. Excuse and me? I can't believe I'm admitting this. This is like... This is more. What did you guys even talk about on so, there? They would talk about like preppy. What's a true clothes. preppy person? It was someone who didn't wear Abercrombie and Fitch. It was someone who wore. Oh Jesus! It was like, oh my God! No, you didn't. And cable knit, and I was I was in this group for like three months. This it, is that is the equivalent of me in the ninth grade. I thought I was like a true punk, you know, not like an, an Avril Lavigne poser punk or yeah. like hot topic punk. So I had a picture of Avril Lavigne in like the back of my binder where I pointed out how she was fake in different ways. I was like, rubber bracelets, $14. Like, tied from Hot Topic, $12. Like, being a poser forever. I mean, I thought I was so fucking cool. I thought I was very... Cool. I, that sounds it, like the equivalent of that. It was a, <laughs> that it group feels, does. Now it feels like it was something that fed into like young Republican groups in hindsight. It kind of sounds like it. I mean, I, I really, I wonder what that site would be today. It sounds a little know. alt-righty. It's so terrible. But back then, like the exclusivity factor of it all was very, very 
cool for me at 16. I don't know why I was into it and how nervous I was about getting accepted. I submitted this application and then girls would just be like, yes, no, yes, no. And then I uh, feel like the gall to have somebody fill out a fucking application for not a real preppy or like for real preppies only or whatever. I (laughs) clearly have sorted through a lot of self-esteem issues (laughs) since I was 16. Um, But at the time, yeah, this was like a big deal. I don't, it was so stupid in hindsight. And what's funny is like, it feels like, I don't know if LA had this, but in DC there was a couple of years later on, like 26, 2006, 2007, I was too young to join this. There was a site, a social site called Late Night Shots. And it was this place where you would learn about upcoming parties and cool events. And it was very much all like Bush staffers. Because this is around George W. Bush era. So it was all pretty much all like Republicans on this thing. And they all would congregate at this one bar that doesn't exist anymore called Smith Point. Where you had to be on the list to go in. And it was all very weird. Like it was a time of exclusivity in D.C. But in a weird way, like, ugly people. Like, it was polo, sh- like, exclusivity, but not even for, like, a thing like in L.A. where it would be a cool club. It was a okay bar where people just wore, like, cable knit sweaters. I don't know. It was a weird time. I don't really I know I think why. our equivalent was, like, Cobra Snake. He was that skeevy photographer who took a lot of pictures of club kids. Yeah. Usually underage, myself included, kids in clubs around L.A., and I forget whatever his website was called, probably thecobrasnake.com or some bullshit like that, where you could, like, find – there would be labeled as, like, different parties, and you could find your picture, and it was supposed to be a big deal. I definitely had my Cobra Snake photo as my um, MySpace picture for a very long time, and Facebook, too, I believe. I re- Actually, I don't really remember, but yes, definitely. So I've just bared my soul of, like, something that is so embarrassing – the live journal sub sub community at my high school, I don't know about yours, was weird. Like, I knew so many people who kept live journals, and that was a big part of my social life. I think it's the first time I can think of an online community besides, like, being on AIM, where I really considered being on there, reading people's entries, and commenting on them as part of socializing with people. Like, I was fr- I became friends with people because I liked their live journals, or I became better friends with people because we would comment on one another's live journals, so... It's interesting. Like, I, I haven't really kept a blog since then. And, you know, I've thought about it before. Apart from, like, an academic thing here or there, I've never really kept a blog since LiveJournal. And it's maybe because I'm so, like, scarred from how I was on LiveJournal. I don't I don't think I've kept a blog since then. I mean, I have, like, a Medium page. And so do we. Old Millennials Pod. Check yeah, it out. check it out. Um, but, but I post so infrequently to my own personal one that it is laughable. So I, and it wasn't a big deal in my high school. The people that I did know were people who also were like part of this like off-brand zine that was not officially endorsed by our high school, but was like a bunch of, you know, artsy, fartsy chicks that like we did music and photography and, and we wrote poems. And so we all also had live journals. And so it was just sort of perpetuating what we already sort of did in person on the internet. So, I mean, it was, it was fine. I, I don't think it was that big of a deal at my high school. And I don't believe that it really contributed much other than I just, my bad poetry, <laughs> truly. Yeah, I, it's interesting. Like, I mean, ultimately, there were times where it stressed me out because I would read things and, or I'd say things that were super angsty. 
But in some other ways, it was really nice to find other people at my school who felt the same way about things, but maybe I didn't get to talk to them really on a day-to-day basis in person. Oh, yeah. There was definitely a level of uh, sharing that borderline to on. Well, it, well, now it probably seems fucking quaint. De- yeah, so quaint. It, uh, like, when you log onto your Facebook, it's such a cacophony of random cries for help. At least LiveJournal, I felt like it was... You were talking about your day, and if you had a bad yeah. day or you're following up on something that you'd already told somebody like you had told everybody about like a crush or exam like results from a test or whatever it was whereas it feels like now it's just like a bunch of disjointed cries for help well i think i got it out of my system in live journal like i think so too and i feel like i had also caused concern too many times that uh, that's why i do not share anything personal on twitter or anywhere on the internet really i yeah i think apart from maybe like one or two you know, hashtag emotional posts. I, I try to keep it light relatively on on social media, but it's, <laughs> it's interesting to me to see people... One thing to get it out of your system in high school, but, like, to see people continue to into that in adulthood and to, you know, make the decision that they need to post a five-paragraph essay on Facebook, like, that no one asked for. I absolutely never read those. Yeah. But going back to the fun, light cousin of LiveJournal... Tumblr. Remember they sucked all the fun out of Tumblr by banning nudity, and before BuzzFeed listed the fuck out of every meme and reblogged response to absolute death, between 2007 and 2009, Tumblr was the shit. Tumblr came to life during a two-week break between gigs, can relate, in 2006 by David Karp. After growing frustrated by the limitations of Blogger, Flickr, and YouTube, Karp discovered Tumbleblogging, a stripped-down version of blogging, originally created by a German teen in 2005. Tumblr was not the first or even the second site that combined link sharing, minimal copy, and pictures. It was the third, maybe even more than that. Because it started with 17-year-old Chris Newkirchen. Newkirchen. I don't know. I hate German names, but I uh, apparently I'm going to say his last name a bunch of times. He was a coding whiz from Bierbach and Dieries and already had a long-form proper blog site. He wanted a place to put all of his other random shorter musings and links. So he called the invention Tumble Logs, which was a combination of Tumble and weblogging, a phrase that was coined by a user on redhanded.hobix.com, which is across a couple other articles credited as who came up with the word Tumble Log, which is also a now-defunct web pro- programming website. Newkirchen's blog, Erechia, was extremely simple. The only rule that was mentioned in one of the first posts was the content had to be less than a paragraph. The site also contained an archive system where posts were organized by month and year, and on the layout of the page, in the middle of it, there was a large white column where the content existed. That is the trait that most closely resembles the first iteration of Tumblr's dashboard. Before getting Carp's attention, the site caught the eye of Marcel Molina, who was living in Chicago and working at the popular web messaging app Campfire, which I do not recall. Do you remember Campfire? Mm-mm. Yeah, don't know her. Molina loved the simplicity of the site, but saw areas of where it could be improved, mostly in the design, and the result was his own thing called Projectionist, which was the world's second tumble log. On the homepage, Projectionist claimed that it was, quote, a tumble log inspired by Chris Newkirchen's Ann Arachia, sorry, I have to take it that slowly because I also want to call it Arachnia. As a token of their appreciation, Molina bought the domain and gave it to Newkirchen as like a thank you for the inspiration. So over the next two years, Facebook and Twitter rose to prominence, but 
neither really came close to the type of blogging style that you would see on a Tumble log. Something that Carp assumed one of these bigger sites would do, so when they never did, he formally launched Tumblr in 2007, even though he came up with it the year earlier. And that's when Molina received a message from Carp out of nowhere. Basically, he let him know that he had seen Projectionist and had been inspired to create his new site that he was launching with his friend, Marco Arment, and it was called Tumblr. Tumblr took the best of Projectionist and Newkirchen's website and combined them into one platform. It was the simplicity of Newkirchen's website, and it had the Projectionist's design appeal. But what Tumblr really did was bring Tumblelog to the masses, because within two weeks of launch, Tumblr had amassed 75,000 users. CARP allowed users to register their own Tumblr URL, customize their blog, and easily share videos, text, and GIFs. Tumblr marketed itself as a home for artists and paid homage to Projectionist on its FAQ page for a time. Over the following year, Molina and CARP exchanged a handful of emails and phone calls to discuss Projectionist and Tumblr, but with time, the two drifted apart. Tumblr quickly ascended to the national spotlight when they raised more than $4.5 million in venture capital and registered more than 50,000 blogs, according to a profile in the Chicago Tribune at the time. And that's when Projectionist disappeared from Tumblr's FAQ page. To date, Carp and Molina have never spoken, and in 2009, Molina was hired as Twitter's 20th engineer and continues to work there. Newkirchen still lives in Germany, where he runs Truvium, a weekly blog. Which sounds familiar, but I've never seen it. it sounds I, I like Trivago. Maybe that's why. The, the, the handsome uh, Silver Fox travel uh. site. <laughs> And as we all know, Yahoo acquired Tumblr in 2013, which netted Carp $250 million for just him. In September 2010, Marco Arnett left to work on Instapaper, which who? A few years later, Tumblr began its first foray into capitalism when they had a brand campaign with Adidas. Adidas launched their own blog and then had placement on user dashboards, which was only the beginning of the end, as some would say. Uh, on May 20th, 2013, it was announced that Yahoo and Tumblr had reached an agreement and Yahoo acquired Tumblr for $1.1 billion in cash. Many of Tumblr's users were unhappy with the news, causing some to start a petition which got almost 170,000 signatures but didn't really do anything to reverse it. And Yahoo famously bought Tumblr because they wanted to reach younger users, which is what they saw Tumblr as. But at this point... theme this whole episode, wanting to reach younger users so you buy at the peak of their popularity. I wouldn't say this was the idea. peak, though. 2013, it was sort of like the beginning of the end for Tumblr. That's true. and But it makes sense that Yahoo, which, you know... Was, was great, out of touch at best. At that point, yeah. I think I only use them for fantasy football at this point. David Karp remained CEO, and the deal was finalized on June 20th, 2013. By 2016, advertising sales tanked, and in 2016 as well, Yahoo wrote down $712 million of Tumblr's value. Verizon Communication acquired Yahoo in June of 2017 and placed Yahoo and Tumblr under its oath subsidiary, and Karp left at the end of 2017. Despite taking a nosedive in 2016 when it lost 100 million monthly visitors over seven months, as of August 2019, Tumblr still hosts 475 million blogs. So it's not all hope is lost, but it's definitely not as fun anymore. No. I have I had a Tumblr at some point in college. I sort of used it as like a Pinterest and also a way to write down quick ideas. But, I mean, just as quickly as I had started, I had dropped the whole habit and was mostly just lurking. And the last time I used Tumblr was when we did the Delia's episode because that's oh, where a yeah. bunch of the magazine pages were scanned into. But Tumblr... I, I don't know. It used to be such a fun place, and I feel like right around 2010, it started to lose a lot of its lightheartedness. Yeah. 
And I don't really know if – I don't believe it was like a 4chan situation where it just got overtaken by trolls. I just think that a lot of people had moved on to other sites, and it just felt a little bit like a tumbleweed blowing through town. Well, Instagram, I think, has taken over a lot of what Tumblr did, which was – True. You know, you would And you were able to monetize for yourself on Instagram ex- versus Tumblr where you could never. Exactly. So on, on Instagram, you can have the image with the caption, and that is exactly what you were doing in Tumblr. It was just much more of a web-based – um, and the picture would be less of an emphasis. And here, I think, yeah, it's basically Instagram was able to do exactly what Tumblr did. And as you said, they have a monetizing component to it. And with that, we are going to close the coffin on these social platforms That's that are right. no longer with us. RIP, may they rest on angel's wings or something. Angel fire's wings. Yeah, there we go. I just think it's really funny that I just started... Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror book and the very first chapter is all about early internet and how she rediscovered her old Angel Fire page and that she tried to use that as a blog and just as quickly abandoned it as she had started it but she has you know strong feelings about how much she loved learning HTML and like building her own GeoCities site as a kid and I think I mean you and I talked about having our own GeoCities sites at a certain point as well so it was just a different a different time when you used it as self-expression, and now it's more of a means for a brand or to launch some sort of brand that you can monetize or for former people on The Bachelor. Amen. <laughs> well, you can read more about our thoughts on these social platforms and other ones that we didn't get to talk about on our Medium page. We are at The Old Millennials Pod. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at the same handle, The Old Millennials Pod. If you like what you heard today, please like, rate, subscribe, give us the five stars. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. We are on SoundCloud. We may be on other things at one point. Or on things that we don't even know about. Like, what's Pocket Cast? What's Pocket Cast? I think it's for Android users. Oh, okay. Okay, got it. Shout out to our Android (laughs) listeners. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Emily A. Beijing. And I'm at Mark She Wrote. And until next time. Bye. Hi, my name's Christian. And I'm Julia. And we're the hosts of the Teen Wolf Rewolf podcast. A podcast about MTV's Teen Wolf. Where every week we take an episode of Teen Wolf and discuss it through a literary lens. Putting our fine arts degrees to good use. So if you're not over all the television you watched in high school, join us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us for updates on Twitter and Instagram at Teen Wolf underscore Rewolf. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.